0: As you can tell, we have a lot of work to do this morning, so let's see how far we can get in Ruth chapter 1. Let's ask the Lord for help this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are in awe of your grace and your mercy in our lives. Lord, that your providence is in, on display for us to see. or help us not to miss it. Lord, we ask for help as we consider the things of Ruth chapter 1 as we consider how we need to be changed by your word, as we consider what it looks like to glorify you, even in the worst of circumstances. Lord, what we know not, we ask that you would teach us. What we have not, we ask that you would give us. And what we are not, we ask that you would kindly make us more like your son. It's in your name we pray and agree. Amen. Amen. The Bible begins with a loud proclamation. If you remember, in Genesis 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Good, we're participating this morning. And all of life begins in that moment with a word from the Lord. On the sixth day, we learn about his creation, that he created us, mankind. And he did so uniquely, didn't he? He gave us his own image to bear. What that means is mankind is the pinnacle of his creative work. We were created to be in right relationship with him. But what we learn quickly in the book of Genesis is that mankind sins and rebels against God. We go our own way. And because God is holy, sin cannot be in his presence. And we were cast out of the garden. Out of the presence of God. And all of life to this day is being experienced outside of the garden. And life outside of the garden is hard, isn't it? Now we in the faith, Christians, people who believe and are following Christ, have confidence that that separation has been removed. Let me say that out the gate. The separation between us and God has been removed totally by the work of Christ on his cross. And when we look at the empty tomb, we can know, we can know there is no more separation between us and God. He's removed it. But nonetheless, we still live outside the garden. And life outside the garden is hard It's marked by disaster and destruction, famine, pestilence, murder, crime, ugliness between people, between us and the ones we love the most, a deep longing for wrongs to be righted, for justice to occur in the face of injustice. Everyone who has ever lived knows in the deepest parts of their souls that this life is not as it should be we live in that tension. We hunger and we long for something more. What we long for is redemption. And despite what many people would say or believe, friends, God has been working throughout history his redemptive plan. He's been working throughout history and through people to take us to the place that we belong. That's where we're going, if you didn't know to a new garden, a new city on a hill, where the former things will pass away and the new will come, where there will be no more death, sorrow, suffering, or sin. It will wash away. That's where Jesus is taking us. Amen? But we're not there yet. We live outside the garden today. The story of Ruth Is a story of the people of God longing for redemption. Longing for their eyes to see the great providential mercy and love of God. Ruth is a beautiful story of life outside of Eden. Of people becoming wise to the hand of God. People's hearts moving from trusting in their own schemes. To trusting in God. That he will provide. Now theologically... In this whole book, we encounter this principle. How will God work in both joy and in hardship? That's what we see in this story. And we will see that theme, that principle, repeated throughout Ruth over and over again. Because God is after accomplishing what he sets out to do. And we learn that reality in Ruth. But today, in chapter 1, what we're going to discuss is what it means to search for mercy and hardship. We'll discover from the lives of a family how we, as a people, often search for mercy in the wrong places. How when things don't go our way, we will even deny mercy that has been extended to us by others. And then how God's loving kindness will lead us. To find the mercy that we ultimately need. That we could have never even have fathomed. So look with me first at uh, verses 1 through 5. As we discover how this family has searched for mercy in the wrong places. And how relevant that is to our lives. This is what God's word says. During the time of the judges there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons. To stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab, and they settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. And her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, the second was named Ruth. And after they lived in Moab about ten years Both Malin and Killian also died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. The setting of Ruth begins with great struggle. The text says out the gate that this is occurring during the time of the judges And during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land, which is a simple sentence with a lot of implications. This period, the time of the judges, sits between Joshua's death, where the people of God have entered the promised land. They have divided the land amongst the tribes. It sits between that and Saul's coronation as king. And the book of Judges summarizes this era's spiritual and moral atmosphere in Judges 21-25. If you've got your Bibles open, that's the last verse of Judges. It may be one page to the left. So look there with me. It says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Let me say that verse a little bit differently. Maybe this will resonate with you. The people of God did not follow God. They followed wherever their hearts led them. They followed their own hearts. Do what, doing whatever seems right to you means that you pursue whatever you think will make you happy. Whatever you think will satisfy. Whatever you think will be the right solution to the problem you are facing. Whatever you think, whatever you desire, you do. And so in Ruth, we encounter a family with the same problem that marks the entire period. There is a famine. And rather than searching for mercy from God, they do whatever seems right to them. And they leave. They flee. Bethlehem. For Moab. What is ironic in that statement is that they leave Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. A famine has occurred, and they leave the house of bread to go to a foreign place with foreign gods to find mercy amongst the enemies of Israel. Elimelech. The patriarch of his household leads his family away from the land that was promised to him and their people to search for mercy in the world. To look for answers to his very real problems in the world. He leaves his God for a foreign land that has foreign gods. Do you know what the name Elimelech means? My God is my king. And he has left his king for a foreign land. You know, I'm sure they only meant to be in Moab for a short while, but just like us, Christian, when we fall into worldly conformity, conformity, it usually begins with a small compromise in pursuit of a solution to a very real problem you are facing. And you tell yourself, I'm only intending to do this for a short while, right? And then you end up settling there. Just like Elimelech and Naomi settled in Moab. You know, we all have paths. Every one of us, friends. This was me over a decade ago. Like, I read this story and I'm like, I went off to Moab (laughs) for sure, (laughs) y'all. You know, after coming home from war, I started experiencing panic attacks daily and night terrors almost every night. Very real problems. Couldn't sleep, couldn't think, couldn't eat. And so my first small compromise was neglect my wife and bury myself in work. Because if I'm busy enough, then I can't think about that stuff. Small compromise. But what would I do when it got quiet at night? When there was no work. So for me, I I turned to drinking. You know, I just needed to sleep. I would tell myself, and then I settled there night after night after night, watching the amount that I was drinking increase exponentially with each day. Until I was in bondage to alcohol. And when God finally wisened me up, when I looked looked back, I saw a path of destruction was behind me. That had hurt my bride. That I had neglected people who needed me. That I was a destroyer in my own strength. Where are you settling, friends? Where is your heart settling? In the house of bread or in Moab? You know, I think if we were to unravel what leads us to these very small compromises that happen when we look for solutions to our very real hardships, what we usually discover is that we are placing our hope in the created instead of the creator. We search for mercy not from God, but from the gifts of God. Missing the fact that the gifts of God are meant to drive our hearts to the source of mercy. The source of hope. But when we simply follow every whim of our hearts ungoverned by the word of God, we functionally, and what I mean when I say functionally, is we would never dare say this out loud. But because of our actions... It says a lot about what we truly think and believe. We functionally believe that we don't need God. That we can figure this out in our own strength, according to our own schemes, according to what we can do. And it's a lie from hell. But nonetheless, we believe it, don't we? And we see this happening everywhere we turn. I see this amongst us in our church and outside of us in the world. Hoping in things that cannot provide ultimate solutions. So what are some of the things that we often put our hope in? You know, if we open this forum up, I bet we could come up with a thousand. (laughs) But here's three. Let's just get the thoughts going. The first thing I often hear is government. This is a common wrong place to put your hope in. Government. You know, we, we hear things, we believe things like if this legislation would be passed on this particular issue, then maybe we can have the society that we long for because this society is messed up. If this politician would just come into power, then we can attain the utopia they promised. How's that work out? Does it? You can talk, y'all. It's okay. No. Never. Second one, it says, is desires. Common wrong places to hope in. Every day we are inundated by the message of the world that your purpose in life is to find pleasure and happiness and do as much of that as you can because after all, you only have one life to live, right? Right? And then a change of circumstance. You know, I counsel a lot of folks, have over many years, and I would say this is the most common thing I hear from the people I counsel. The uncertain belief that if one thing in your life would just change, then all would be well. If I just got this promotion, then. If I just made this amount of money, then. If my kids would just If my husband would just, if my wife would quit, then our marriage. If I could just get out of this commander, get out from under this commander, then. Uncertain. You cannot base your life, your hope on things that are uncertain. As I said earlier, these things, these three things cannot provide mercy to you or lasting solution. But these, even these three things, we're we'll just taking this as a case study, are meant to drive your heart to the source of mercy and true solution. So now if we were to look at these three things and then govern them by the word of God, what would we learn? Well, for government, we would take Proverbs 21:1. And it would say this, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Or Romans 13.1 that says that the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So we don't hope in governments. We hope in the one who institutes the governments. That's how God's word governs and protects our hearts to rejecting, rebelling, and forsaking him. We govern these things by the word of God. What about our desires? Desires governed by the word of God. God calls you to obedience and faith for your eternal inheritance is far greater than what you could ever possess in this world. That's what Ephesians 1:13 through 14 is all about. When you read Psalm 143, verse 10, it says, Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. The thing about desires is it is an unstable foundation to live your life on. Because desires are fickle, feelings are fickle, truth is stable, God's will is stable. I remember it was like back in 2015, and we had this small group at our house, and it was really sweet. We lived in a duplex back then, and there was like 35 adults in that place, <laughs> and then an increased with kids, y'all. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was a madhouse, but like half the neighborhood would come to this small group. It was a beautiful thing, but I remember one night, this guy who was in our small group driving into our parking lot at like 1030 at night, he stepped out of the car, he knocked on my door, and I was like, what's, you know, what's up, man? And he said, I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm going to leave my wife. And I took him by the neck, not aggressively, softly. <laughs> and I led him to the front of the car, <laughs> and who was in the car were his two babies. I said, you're walking away. From your family. He said, I don't care. God wants me to be happy. I said, No, brother. He wants you to be obedient because obedience brings joy. It keeps you out of the pit. He said, No. I said, Okay. You're going to call me in two years asking me to help you clean up this mess and there won't be anything we can do. He said, No, I won't. You know what happened two years later? Like it always does, I get a phone call. Because God is passionate about his children, he will not let you live in rebellion, not at peace. <laughs> he will remove peace from your heart to take you to the place you belong. Because he loves you. He did that in this brother. He called me and I said, You know, your wife is remarried because you abandoned her? Like, What do you want me to do? What do you expect I can do? I can do nothing. There are consequences for sin. And he had to live in that. We don't hope in our desires. We hope in the word. We hope in what is stable and true. What about change of circumstance? Look, Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8 helps us here. It says, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is in the Lord is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its root out towards a stream and it doesn't fear when the heat comes. The text doesn't say you don't fear when your circumstances change. The text says because you trust in God who is sovereign over your circumstances, you don't fear when the heat comes because it's coming. The thing about hoping in a change of circumstances is even if you get a change of circumstance, guess what circumstance is about to change? That one. (laughs) Almost as fast as you get into a new place and a new position in a moment. Well, how do we stabilize through all of that? We hope, we trust in the source of life who is sovereign over our circumstances. Dear Christian, when you misplace your hope You need to know that God in his loving kindness to you will discipline you. He will discipline you because he loves you. Because in him is found mercy and help in time of need. That's grace. He will take you home where you belong. So don't run off to Moab. Don't abandon the household of bread for the world. Mercy is not found there only more grief. And this is what Naomi begins to discover as her husband dies, as her sons die. When we search for mercy in the wrong places, what happens to our hearts is over time, they begin to harden to the point where we can't see when God sends mercy to us through others. Look with me at verses 6 through 13. It says this, she and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord, what she heard, the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by what? Providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law. And they traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness. Everybody say kindness. Kindness. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. And they said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have more sons who could become your husband? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am far too old to have a husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourself from remarrying? pay attention no my daughters my life is much too what bitter close <laughs> bitter cuz it's hard that's right my life is much too bitter for you to share because the lord's hand has turned against me one of the things i love in this book ruth is the beautiful theme woven between the lines of God's providence working to move his people to where they belong. And the first glimmer of hope and mercy happens in verse 6. What draws Naomi home? Is it, it is that she has heard that the Lord has paid attention to the needs of his peoples and provided them food can't imagine, though, in Naomi, the insurmountable grief of her heart as I read this story. She has lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. She has her daughters-in-law that she cares for and loves. But if you're a woman in this time in history, if you lose all the men in your life who are there to provide and care and protect you, you've basically received a death sentence. And so in her mind, it's better off you go home to your mom's, find a husband back in your land. But God's mercy draws us to life. That's doing whatever seems right to you. Even if it's the most logical thing, it sounds like. God's mercy draws us to life. And it drew Naomi back to where she belonged. What she didn't have was very simple. She cannot live without food. And the place that had food was the place that she was always intended to be. You know, in our rebellion, we often can't see how God is working in our circumstances. We are blind to it. I remember counseling this chaplain several years ago who was so embittered towards God because every time he PCS'd or moved military installations, he got sent to a desert. He's like, I keep getting sent to these deserts. And each time he would be ready to PCS, he would plead for, he would contest for jobs that were in better locations, you know, and to no avail. He just kept going to deserts. Over time... What he realized was at every desert, God would send people into his life who would speak truth, who would encourage, rebuke, correct, and help him and his family. God continually gave his family churches who would contend for their souls because during each of these places, he wanted to do, the desire that was ruling him was to leave his bride and his family. Can't do it anymore. I don't want to be in this. I'm miserable. And God just kept sending him to deserts and sending people into his life who were not letting it go. But he was blind to what God was doing because it wasn't what he wanted. And so even though many were loving them, he would continually deny the mercy that God was sending him through people. That was the first issue we had to deal with when we began meeting together. And this is what Naomi does. She does this. To Orpah and Ruth. She notes that the ladies have been blessings to her. She even uses the word kindness that we all repeated. That was shown to her and the dead. You know this word that we translated here into kindness. Is actually a Hebrew word that we, we don't have enough English in our language to truly translate. There's a few words like that. In the Bible, and this is one of them. It comes from the Hebrew word, hased, to describe their love. This word is often used to describe the love of God throughout the Old Testament and is the key theological term for everything we look at in this chapter and in this book. Now, the best I could muster to try and define it for you is covenantal, unfailing, unrelenting love towards someone who deserves none of it. It's the best I can, I can muster to capture it. They have written tombs on this daggum word <laughs> alone. And this is the love that she believes Ruth and Orpah have shown to her. But she denies that mercy, doesn't she? Why? Why does she deny it? Look at verse 13 my life is too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi denies this beautiful mercy her daughters-in-law are showing because she is bitter. You know, when you go to the grocery store, especially in the summertime, there's all these melons you could purchase. And we always go for the sweet ones, right? Because they're delicious. You know what I'm saying? I remember going to the grocery store once with my grandmother, and she picked this melon I had never seen before. We went home, and we, she cut it open, and we started eating it, and it was bitter melon, y'all. And like instantly, I was like, Rah! you know, like I could not contain my face because I ha- was having a physiological reaction to what was bitter. And when we come into contact with bitter people, we have physiological reactions to them, do we not? In my community, the veteran community, we call this guy the dysfunctional veteran. And guys wear shirts, and they look a certain way. You want to know why? Because they want people to stay away from them. If I look this way, if I have this persona, because of the bitterness in my heart, people won't extend or love or pursue me and keep people away. I can deny mercy from others because of the bitterness in the heart. Bitterness... Denying mercy is a fruit of bitterness. So, what is bitterness? Bitterness is often defined in a couple of different ways, but feeling angry or hurt or resentful because one's bad experiences or a sense of unjust treatment or an inner emotional feeling of deep sorrow and an outward cry or outward directed anger that happens through a cry. Now, doesn't this describe Naomi? Bad experience after bad experience. Deep sorrow over deep loss. Feelings of injustice. We can slip into bitterness so easily when we are spiritually malnourished. Because when we are spiritually malnourished, we are ruled by our feelings alone. And we steep in that bitterness. There's a couple things you need to know about bitterness. Bitterness binds And bitterness blinds. Let's start with binds. Bitterness blinds us to the hand of God at work in our lives. We can't see it. Where is God? (laughs) We will often say. Bitterness blinds us from experiencing the love and mercy that's been extended to us by others. Blinds us to it. We think, man, they're just trying to scheme against me. They're trying to figure an angle out. We're skeptical of everybody around us. Bitterness blinds us from seeing good in life. And it blinds us to hope. We don't see the hope we have. What about binds? Bitterness will bind you to self-condemnation. When you are in a bitter state and you ostracize yourself from all of your community, you will start condemning yourself, throwing shots at your heart, just because you're disgusted with what you're doing. But you're so bitter, you won't do anything different. You're binded. You're bound. And then you do this other thing. I'm going to condemn everybody else because it's their fault that I'm like this. The lies that fester, right? It also binds us to Unloving responses to the people we love. Even when people we love are kind and loving to us, I And mean, we sharp, right? Snappy. We'll cut, we'll maim them. It binds us to sinful rebellion. So that's the fruit. What about the root? The root of bitterness we learn from this text is a distorted view. Of God. Notice that Naomi says, she is bitter because God has turned against her. She blames God for her problems instead of seeing God as the solution to the wounds of her heart, who is tenderly caring for her and moving her to where she belongs. Bitterness is venomous to others. So, what do you do if you find yourself embittered? There's three exhortations for you this morning. If you are in a state of bitterness, what do you do? How do you move your heart out of that place? Well, first, learn to practice the privilege of biblical lament. Learn to practice the privilege of biblical lament. I'll give you an example. Consider David's words in Psalm 61, 1 through 2. God, hear my cry. Pay attention to my prayer. I call... To you from the ends of the earth, when my heart is without strength, lead me to the rock that is high above me. David begins his prayer, his psalm, by pleading with the Lord over his struggle. He's honest, he's authentic, he doesn't sin against God, you know, saying all sorts of craziness. I would never encourage people like, you just tell God whatever you No, you don't sin against God. Like, under that. We share whatever we need to share, right? He can handle it. But we don't sin against him. That's not good. That's bad counsel. That's unwise, all right? So good counsel. When you're lamenting, you share your heart. You expose it. I have come, David says, I, my strength is gone. I have no more. This struggle's too much. What do I do, God? And then he chooses to hope. This is what makes this kind of prayer different than just grumbling and complaining. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. Hope in God. You, in a biblical lament, you have to command your heart to move forward towards hope. And we can do that through prayer. So if you're embittered, man, make biblical lament a practice because it will lead you out of that pit. Second, meditate on God's character as defined by him, not by you. We need to spend our energy thinking about who God says he is and not trying to perceive God through the lens of our pain. No, we perceive our pain through the lens of God, and we will see clearly. The distortion will be removed. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am a help, an ever-present help in your time of trouble. Okay, what does that tell me about God? Let me meditate on that. Let me spend my energy dwelling on that. That's what Philippians 4.8 is all about. Dwell on those truths of the character of God. It will lead you to trust. And lastly, Rejoice. We have to discipline our hearts in gratitude. And when you are so embittered, you have nothing you're grateful for. Have you ever been there? (laughs) I have. Like, nothing's good. Ah! I throw a little internal fit. But in that bitter place, there's one thing I can cling to because I am in Christ. I can rejoice in the sweetness of my redeeming Savior who will redeem even this that I'm feeling right now. He will turn this towards good, even when I mean it for evil. That's who my God is. That's who he says that he is. So instead of denying mercy, accept it and find it in the right place. And the right place is in the hands of our redeeming God. So we are totally out of time. And we did not get through the chapter. I don't know if you noticed. So here's what I want to do to help us I want to read to you the close of the chapter. But I want you to pay attention to a couple of things as we read. So go ahead and turn your Bibles. If you didn't already do it, get there. I want you to pay attention to the loving kindness of God revealed through Ruth towards Naomi. The hesed love in action. And then I want you to look at, focus on verse 22. Because it beautifully displays that kind of love of God the covenantal faithfulness, kindness, mercy, and love of God that Naomi does not deserve, nor do we, but even so, we still receive. So look with me at verses 14 through 22. Here's what it says. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely. If anything but death separates you and I. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her. What did she do? She stopped talking to her. <laughs> Come on, Naomi. I'm rooting for you, girl. 19. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which is a Hebrew word for bitter. She answered, For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went back full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. All right, verse 22. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley, what? Harvest. What is a harvest? When things are ready to eat, y'all. when does God bring her back? This is the transition sentence for the rest of Ruth and the unfolding of Boaz and all the cool things that we're excited to talk about, right? But he brings Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the time of harvest, barley harvest, to eat what? Bread. What she doesn't have, what she needs. Hope. Even in her embittered state, God is providing for her. Why? Because she is his daughter. He does the same for you. Even in your blindness, even in your rebellion, the Lord God loves you so much, he will give you exactly what you need. He'll wreck you. He will oppose you to bring you to where you belong. That's a mercy. But he'll also provide for you along the way in his goodness and his faithfulness to you. So let us be like Ruth. Let us cling to God. Let us be nourished in the great truths of the Bible. Let us hope in the one who can provide true solution to the weariness of our souls. Let's stand and pray.